It is a wonderful joy to be gathered with you guys here, and I bring greetings from Covenant Hope Church. We're so thankful for you. We're thankful for our partnership in the gospel here in the UAE, and it's an especial privilege for me to be asked to open God's Word for us today, to uh, spend time studying it and thinking about it. So please, if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 101. That's where we'll be today. The Pilgrim's Progress is one of the best-selling books of all time. Some uh, count it as only second to the Bible in terms of the amount of time it's been purchased and read, and it's been translated into 200 different languages. It's greatly beloved by many people, but especially by Christians. It was written almost 400 years ago and has never been out of print since it was published. It's an astonishing book. It's a wonderful book that tells the story of the Christian life. It it presents a picture of what it means to be a Christian. It's about a man who is creatively uh, named Christian, and he is making his way from the city of destruction, and it's a treacherous path. It's a long journey. It's filled with twists and turns and all kinds of things, but he's making his way towards the celestial city. It's his desire to arrive at this great city where he will be with the king. That idea of presenting the Christian life as a pilgrimage or a journey, a path or a way, is familiar to us if we've been in the Word, because it's a picture that the Bible presents, and we'll see that here in Psalm 101 as well. The Christian life is talked about with the language of walking in a way. And there are actually multiple paths, according to the Bible. There is the way that leads to heaven, to be with the king, and there is the way that leads to destruction. There's the way of blamelessness, or there is the way of guiltiness. We'll see that as we study this passage today. In Psalm 101, King David makes a pledge. He makes a vow, a commitment to the Lord to walk in the way that is blameless and to promote blamelessness amongst His people. Before we turn to our text, let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer and ask for His help as we study His Word together. Heavenly Father, we need Your help. Lord, on our own, we are blind to Your ways. We have hearts that are hard. We are given to walking in our own ways, not Your ways. And so, Lord, we ask that You would open our eyes today to behold wonderful things in Your Word. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Follow along as I read the text for us. Psalm 101, a psalm of David. I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set 
before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. This is God's Word. What a glorious vow that David makes. David, as the king, of course, was called to model godliness for the people, to model devotion and commitment to the Lord his God, the king of Israel, the true king. As the human king, David was also to promote godliness amongst his people and to enforce justice among them. And so, King David here in this psalm, in this song, he vows to walk in the way that's blameless and to lead his people in the way that is blameless as well. That's the main point of Psalm 101. It's very simple. Follow the blameless king. Follow the blameless king. And we see this in two parts. In verses 1 through 4, we see David committing to be blameless, to be this blameless king in private. And then we see in verses 5 through 8 that the king commits to promote blamelessness in public. So, if you're taking notes, those are the two points, the king in private and the king in public. And so, let's look at the first four verses, the king in private. Maybe you wonder where blamelessness begins. Where do we start if we want to live lives of integrity, if we want to be holy and godly? Where do we begin? I know that for myself, I am regularly frustrated with the ways that I am not godly, the ways that I'm not blameless. I'm not the man that I want to be, and so maybe if you feel that way too, then you've wondered, where can I begin? How can I change? Where does true change really start? Well, we'll see in these first four verses that personal holiness basically boils down to pursuing purity and avoiding evil. We see that very clearly, but the psalm begins in a somewhat surprising way. Look back at verse 1 with me. David says, I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. Maybe you're wondering, what does singing have to do with being blameless? What does making music, is this just something that David is fond of? We know if we've studied the Old Testament, David was a musician, he was gifted, he wrote lots of psalms, many of the psalms in the Bible. Is David just throwing singing in just as extra, you know, just his, his hobby, his personal habit? Well, no, I, I don't think that is the, the answer. I, I believe that David starts here in verse 1. He starts where we all must start as we begin to pursue and strive for holiness in our lives. He begins with his eyes turning to the Lord. 
his heart turning towards the Lord. Integrity in our lives begins first and uh, begins first and ultimately is most influenced by our relationship between us and the Lord. It's vertical uh, before it ever goes horizontal between blamelessness between one another. And so, as we pursue holiness, we must begin with a right relationship with God. And that's why King David starts where he does. He starts by turning his attention to the Lord. He reorients his heart by putting God first. He reflects on what God is like even here in verse 1, and he rejoices in the Lord's steadfast love, His covenant love and His justice, God's holiness. So, if we want to grow in godliness, first we must fix our thoughts on God. Where else would we learn how to be godly than to reflect on God, who it is that we're seeking to be like? And so, David commits to sing praises about the Lord and to the Lord. That's why we include singing when we gather together. It's a command from the Lord, but it's also a way of honoring the Lord first, putting Him first and foremost in our thoughts. And singing is different than purely mental agreement about truths about God, isn't it? We all know that. We sense that as we sing together. David's not just saying that God's loving and that God is just, though that's true. And we, at times, we make public confessions together. We uh, recount truths about God in words. But here, actually, David isn't just saying it. He's actually singing about it. As we seek to lead a blameless life, we must be swept up with the truths of who God is. And singing is one of the ways that we do that. It's a, a wonderful vehicle for helping us to feel the right way about the truths that we're saying. The truths that, if we just read the lyrics out loud, wouldn't have the same effects on our hearts. Singing is a wonderful gift from the Lord to help tune our hearts to know Him, to love Him, to delight in Him, and to feel deeply the truths that we know in our heads, but feel them deeply in our hearts. And so, let me give you one application already from verse 1. I want to encourage you not to wait until Fridays to sing praises to the Lord. Not only when you gather together with the whole church, though of course that's a wonderful time, but also to do it throughout the week, to do it with your family, to do it with your housemates, to do it with your spouse, to do it with your friends. Sing about the Lord. Sing songs filled with spiritual truths about who God is and what He has done for you. It will stir your affections for the Lord. It will help you grow in godliness. It will change your life. Think about it for a moment. In God's perfect wisdom, He designed a book, and the largest portion of it is a songbook, 150 chapters of songs for God's people. Songs are incredible for helping us learn truths about God, helping us remember truths about God, and to delight in truths about God. And so, I want to encourage you to do that. Include it in your day-to-day -day life. It will help you love the Lord more, and it will help you in your fight against sin and your fight for holiness. Living blamelessly begins with delighting in the Lord, but it doesn't end there. So, look with me at verse 2 now. 
David commits to ponder the way that is blameless, he says. I will ponder the way that's blameless. To ponder is to think deeply about something, to study it, to wrestle with it, to carefully consider. And so let me ask you, what what is it that you spend time pondering? Where do your thoughts turn when you have spare time, and where do your thoughts run off to? What do you spend time trying to understand better, to, to really wrestle with, to consider it carefully and thoughtfully? Pondering is not something that we can do very easily in a very short period of time. It takes time to ponder. It takes time to give careful thought and attention to something, to try to understand it, to wrestle with it. And so, what, what is it that you give your time to, your thought life to? Maybe you're thinking, Mark, I don't have time to ponder. I, I'm so busy. Consider David, the king that wrote this. He was ruling a nation. He had lots of life responsibilities, didn't he? Lots of things were competing for King David's attention. But he vows to pay close attention, to carefully consider, to ponder the way that is blameless. That is the way that is obedient to God, the way that will be pleasing to God. And as he considers pondering God's way, he recognizes that he needs the Lord's help and guidance, and so he cries out, oh, when will you come to me? David needs God's help to ponder his ways. He needs the Lord's help and his presence and his guidance. He throws up a a desperate prayer in the midst of committing to following the Lord and considering His ways. Sometimes we get so busy that we we don't even think about the direction that we're going. We don't think about what, what is the way that I'm walking in. But David wants to take time to think about it, to consider. Sometimes we're just going, and we're not really even taking time to lift up our eyes and see, well, where am I headed? What path am I on? Which way am I following? But brothers and sisters, we need to pay close attention to the path that we're on, to the way that we're headed, to whether we're walking in righteousness or not, because holiness doesn't happen by accident. It takes intentionality. It takes commitment. It takes a pledge like this to the Lord. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to take time to reflect on what God has called you to do to consider and identify ways that you're falling short of living blamelessly before the Lord and before others. Consider that, write a list of those things, and confess them to the Lord, but also confess them to a brother or a sister in this church. Write down ways that you want to grow, and ask them, ask that brother or sister. Maybe you've seen some of the things in others that you would like to see in your own life. Ask them to give you wisdom, Share with them how you would like to grow and ask them to follow up with you. Take time to strategize together to think, how can I grow in holiness in this area of my life? And then pray. Pray desperately together. Ask the Lord, come. When will you come to me, Lord? Help me. But then beyond that, you must then act. You must act upon this list and this strategy and these prayers. 
And that's what David does here. Look, in, still in verse 2, he says, I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. That's where godliness is hardest, isn't it? It's often easy to know what we ought to be doing. There are times where it's challenging to know what the right way is, but oftentimes we know what God's called us to do, but it's actually doing it consistently where we struggle most of all, isn't it? It's not just enough for us to think about the ways of the Lord, to ponder them carefully, to even pray about them. No, we must act. We must live a blameless life, and we must live it from the heart. David here says that he will walk with integrity of heart in his house. Biblically speaking, the heart is not the pump that pushes blood around your body. In the Scriptures, when the Bible speaks about the heart, it's your inner person. It's your spirit, your soul, your thoughts, your emotions, your will, your desires. Your heart is the real you. It's who you really are deep down. That's why Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 warns us. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Your life flows out of what is in your heart. And so, whatever rules your heart, whatever you're giving your heart to, will direct the course of your path. That's the way that you will walk, whatever has captivated your heart. David speaks about the heart again in in verse 4 and in verse 5, but there, it's not a blameless heart, it's not a heart of integrity, it's a devious heart. It's an arrogant or proud heart, which results in walking in wickedness. You know, the Lord Jesus taught this very same thing about the heart and how it guides who we are. Jesus said, the good man brings good things out of the good that is stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Even the words that you speak reveal what's going on in your heart, what you care most deeply about. And so, Godliness must begin with cultivating a godly heart. And we do this, we cultivate a godly heart by doing what David has already shown us to do. It's by committing to put God first in our lives. It's by worshiping Him, delighting in Him and His ways and His character. It's by meditating on His ways as well and considering them and then being determined not just to study them, not to just think about them, but to actually walk in them. And we see that this begins at home. Look at the end of verse 2 there. He says he's going to do this within his own house. Of course, as the king, that meant the palace, his, uh, his legacy. His, but of course, this also means where he lived, within the doors of his home. And so who we are when we are behind closed doors at home when nobody else is watching us, it reveals who we really are. It tells us about what's going on inside of our hearts. Blamelessness begins in our homes, and it begins in our hearts. And so, as you consider your household, let me encourage you, if you're here and you're a husband, a father, you're to lead in this. Just like King David in 
the nation of Israel, you're to lead your home in living for the Lord. You're to model for your wife and your children what it means to live blamelessly. You're to consider and to help them to consider what it looks like to walk the way that is blameless. Parents, you're to guide your children in this. And even if you're not married or if you're not uh, a parent yet, you can do this with those that live with you. If you have roommates, others, you can encourage them in your home to live blamelessly together. Verses 1 and 2 teach us that blamelessness begins by pursuing purity. We've seen David's commitment to pursue purity, but verses 3 and 4 turn, and they show us that blamelessness also involves avoiding evil. So, look at verses 3 and 4. David says he won't set anything worthless before his eyes. And that might seem like a strange phrase to you to set something before your eyes, but this is, this is kind of like setting your eyes on the prize or keeping your eyes on the prize. What is the goal that you seek to achieve? What are you striving for? What are you pursuing? Of course, this means even the things that we, we entertain ourselves with, books, magazines, movies, but it's also the aim of our life. What is it that we're putting before our eyes to pursue? Consider that. What is it that you strive for in your life? What is the most important thing to you? Is it something that is worthy? Is it helping you to look more like Christ? Is it helping you to grow in godliness, or is it worthless? Is it keeping you from Christ-likeness? Is it leading you to compromise? It can be anything. David doesn't specify which things are worthless, but the idea is that Nothing that keeps him from honoring God will be an exception. Not anything worthless will he put before his eyes. And then there in verse 3, he says, I hate the work of those who fall away. Those who fall away are the ones who are swerving from the path of blamelessness. They're turning away from the Lord. They're getting off course. They're making compromises, maybe perhaps seemingly small at first, but evil nonetheless. And David says he hates this kind of compromise. He hates small compromises for sin. And so it's important to recognize that holiness in our lives involves both loving God and hating sin, hating worthless things. David intends to be wholly devoted to the Lord, and so he won't allow for the works of those that are wicked, to cling to Him, he says. With people all around pursuing pleasure and popularity and status and materialism here, it's easy for us to get swept along in the flood of worthless idols that are on offer here in the UAE or in the world at large. It takes determination to choose to turn your heart away from those things, to hate those things, that the whole world says you should love. But if you give sin even an inch, it'll take a whole mile. Sin grabs on to you. He says that he won't allow it to cling to him because sin grabs on. It's sticky. It's clingy. It's like chewing gum that gets stuck in your hair. The more you wrestle with it, the more stuck it gets, and eventually it needs scissors to remove it. 
King David vows to avoid evil at all costs because he knows that the way of small compromises often turns into the path of outright evil. Even minuscule compromises often are the first step towards massive falls. We hear about this all the time when we hear about prominent Christian leaders who fall, that oftentimes it was many, many little steps that led to devastating falls. And so David here is committing not only to walking in the way of the Lord, but also to avoiding the path of evil at all costs. He's taking sin seriously. He's hating it. So let me ask you, consider for yourselves, where are you tempted to compromise, to think, oh, it's not too bad? It's maybe not blameless, but it's not as bad as some others. Perhaps you're trying to walk that line just on the edge of righteousness and rebellion. Brothers and sisters, let me warn you, you must hate sin. Flee from it. Are you walking in the way that's righteous? Are you pressing forward each day? Or or are you becoming content with your level of holiness? You're thinking, I'm doing okay. Maybe you're coasting. Maybe you're not walking the path anymore, or maybe you're walking it more slowly. You're taking fewer and fewer steps forwards in holiness. Perhaps you're standing in the way that is blameless, not walking it. Maybe you're looking to the left or to the right, to other ways, gazing at other paths, thinking, perhaps I'll take a stroll down there, not too far. This is dangerous. Another Puritan like the one who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, John Owen, wrote a book about killing sin in our lives. He wrote about this very topic, about avoiding evil. That book's called The Mortification of Sin, and he encourages the reader He asks them, do you mortify? That means do you put it to death? Do you kill it? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's what sin does. It leads to death. And so living blamelessly requires daily putting sin to death you can't stop. You can't take a break. Sin wants to capture you, to ensnare you. You must be killing sin, or it will be killing you. That's what we heard in our Scripture reading earlier in the service from Colossians chapter 3. We have to put off the old self. We need to put it to death. We need to crucify it, along with its evil desires. Maybe as I've been talking about this psalm and talking about how King David had made this glorious pledge, maybe you were thinking, wait a minute, David, David learned this lesson, didn't he, about sin and its devastating effects. Even David, the man after God's own heart, could not live up to this vow, could he? It was in his own house that David had his greatest betrayal of God. David fell hard, But it began with a very small, small decision, just a little compromise. At the time when David should have gone out to battle, he didn't go. He decided to stay home. He'd been in battles before. He'd fought so many times for the Lord. But instead, he remained in Jerusalem, and he neglected his duty to lead his people. In Jerusalem, 
David wandered up on his roof. Remember, of course, all the men had gone to battle, only the women were left. He took a look at his city, and he set his eyes upon Bathsheba, another man's wife. David's heart wanted her, and so he took her. And when he found out that she was pregnant with his child, he had her husband, Uriah, killed in battle. Ultimately, King David's betrayal started the course of events that led to the downfall of the whole kingdom of God, Israel. David learned this lesson all too well, that small compromises lead to drastic, deadly results. But the failures of David and the failures of every single king from his line after him They're not proof that this ideal here in Psalm 101 was not attainable. Rather, they point to a future king, to the son of David, to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus who wouldn't only vow to be blameless, but would actually be perfectly blameless, perfectly sinless, would never fail to keep His promises to the Lord. Jesus is the person that Psalm 101 is pointing to. Jesus is this perfect king, this blameless one that we should follow. Jesus is the steadfast love of which we sing about. Jesus, in Him, we see God's love and justice on display. And so we make music because Jesus was God's Son who took on flesh and came to live a perfect life, a blameless life in our place. He walked the path of blamelessness, but it took him to the cross, where he died as though he were guilty. He bore God's wrath against our sin in his body when he died on the cross, and he was punished as though he were guilty, though he were blameless. And he did this so that he could make you and I blameless. He did it so that if we would turn from our sins, put our faith and trust in him, that we would be counted righteous. We would be counted as though we had never sinned. We would be blameless in His sight. If you're here today and you have not turned to King Jesus, I plead with you today to turn, put your faith in Him. Turn from your sin. Don't walk your own way. Walk the Lord's way, following after Christ. Put your trust in Him and what He's done, His atoning sacrifice on the cross and His resurrection to new life. Jesus is this perfect King, and at the cross is where we see God's love on display, that He would send His Son to die for sinners, but we also see God's holiness and His justice, as He cannot tolerate sin in our lives. If you're not a Christian, turn to Him, trust in Him. But brothers and sisters, this glorious news, this gospel, is good news for us as well, not just to be saved, but it's also good news for us as we seek to live blamelessly. Christians aren't just counted blameless in God's sight through the gospel. We can and will become blameless. God has given us a new heart. He's written His law upon our hearts. He has given us His Spirit. We've been set free from slavery to sin. We've become slaves of righteousness. 
And so Psalm 101 isn't merely an ideal standard that no one but Christ can fulfill. It's a standard that any who are trusting in Him must strive for as well. And we have the power of God in us by His Spirit to turn from evil and to pursue holiness. Jesus doesn't simply just live blamelessly for us. He promotes blamelessness among us. That's just what David commits to do in verses 5 through 8, the second point of our sermon, the king in public. The king was called to lead God's people. He was called to lead them in living out God's law. He was called to embody God's law, to model it personally and to promote it publicly. In fact, the king was called to write a copy of the law for himself and to meditate upon it, to study it, and to live it out as a living example. And David's plan for promoting holiness and blamelessness in his kingdom is really quite simple. We see here in these last four verses that the king will punish wickedness and he will reward faithfulness. The king will punish wickedness and he's going to reward faithfulness. Throughout these last few verses of the psalm, the king issues warnings against the wicked, vowing not to tolerate wickedness in his kingdom. So skim over verses 5 through 8 with me. Look there. Verse 5, he says, whoever slanders in secret, and whoever has a haughty look, he will not tolerate. Verse 7, no one who practices deceit and no one who utters lies will be with him. And finally, in verse 8, all the wicked, all the evil doers of the land will be cut off, will be destroyed. The king is not going to make any exceptions. His judgment will be consistent, and it will be comprehensive, because he knows that sin spreads, he knows it's clingy, and if his people have any hope of living blamelessly, any and every instance of sin must be dealt with daily, he says. Morning after morning, morning by morning, he will cut off sin from the land. Punishing wickedness protects God's people. That's what the kings were called to do. And as we see, if you study the books of First and Second Kings, the kings did, failed pretty miserably at this. David's not only interested in what we might consider big sins either, like murder or adultery or stealing. None of those are mentioned here, actually. David cares about seemingly small sins. Look over them. In verse 5, he says the first sin he mentions is secret slander. Slander is saying something that's false about someone else in order to hurt their reputation, to make them look bad and We see that this is similar to even one of the Ten Commandments about bearing false witness against others. So, speaking in false ways about others to make them appear bad. David's vowing to keep God's law, and since God cares about the conversations that we have in the privacy of our own living rooms, David cares too. It's interesting that David commits to punishing this kind of sin because it's secret, he says. So how would the king know if you, have a, if you secretly slander someone in your living room or if someone in Israel did that? Well, as we've probably all experienced, sometimes things that are 
privately shared, and they spread faster than public speeches, don't they? Especially when people say something juicy about somebody else, something that's negative. So let me ask you, do you speak well of others, or do you speak poorly of them? When nobody else is listening, what do you say about others? Would you be glad for them to walk into the room while you were saying it? God cares about how we use our tongue. God cares about the words that we speak about one another. And we will give an account to Him for every careless word that we have uttered. Sometimes we're tempted to slander others, not to make them look bad necessarily, but sometimes we're tempted to do it to make ourselves look good, to boost our own egos, which connects with the second sin that David mentions there at the end of verse 5, where he says he will not tolerate haughty eyes and an arrogant heart. He won't tolerate pride. It's funny how he says a haughty eye or a haughty look, sorry, we can oftentimes see haughtiness, right? We can see pride in people, puffed up chest, looking down their nose at you, strutting, thinking that they are the bee's knees. Arrogance in our heart can often be seen on the outside, and that's what David's talking about here. He won't tolerate pride in his kingdom. God hates pride. God opposes the proud, and so David commits to doing so too. The author C.S. Lewis wrote about pride. He says, as long as you are a proud person, you cannot know God, which is pretty staggering. As long as you're a proud person, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that's above you. Pride is a great danger. And so let me ask, what are you doing about pride in your life? Are you identifying ways that you see pride in your life and seeking to kill it, put it to death? Here are just a couple of ways that you might identify pride in yourself. They're a series of questions. First, let me ask, how well do you serve others? You know, proud people, they don't want to serve others. They want to be served. But, surprisingly, sometimes proud people are very keen to serve. They're very eager to serve, but they want to serve in ways that others recognize. They want to seek a platform from which to be seen by others and to be thought of highly by others. Even something like what I'm doing right now, standing up before you and preaching can be a temptation towards pride. So how do you serve others? How well do you do that? Second question, how well do you listen to others versus talk? Proud people interrupt others because they know best, and they rarely ask questions because they could, what could they learn from somebody else? And they're more important. Pride doesn't listen, pride knows. Surprisingly, though, again, pride can form in different ways. It can show itself in different ways. Sometimes proud people can alternatively shy away from ever speaking up, 
in fear of getting it wrong and looking bad. They don't want others to think they look, that they got it wrong. They don't want to be thought of poorly by others. And so, consider for yourselves, how, do you, how well do you show uh, humility in the way that you listen to others or talk, or does it reveal pride in your heart? Thirdly, how quick are you to ask for forgiveness and confess sin to others? Since proud people are never wrong, then why would they ever have to confess a need for forgiveness from God or from others? Oh no, that is pride. Pride. Proud people struggle to especially confess to people that are below them, at least in their own eyes. Maybe it's their children. Asking for forgiveness from your children is very humbling. Hannah and I have learned that even over the last year of Charlotte's life. Christians are far, uh, uh, Christians are the people who should be able to confess their sins most freely because of the gospel. We can all agree we're, we're sinners and that we need forgiveness from others. Brothers and sisters, pride is the seed which sprouts into all kinds of wickedness in our lives. It's what keeps us off the path of righteousness and keeps us from the path of blamelessness. And so we must be actively destroying pride. And the best way to destroy pride is to remember the good news, the gospel that I shared earlier. Because the gospel tells us that God is all-wise, that He's all-powerful, that He's all-knowing. And it tells me that I am not. It tells me that I don't always know. I can't always see. I'm a sinner. In fact, I'm often wrong. I'm confused and blinded by sin. The gospel tells me that I don't deserve God's blessing because of my sin, that I deserve judgment, that I deserve condemnation, and I deserve to go to hell for all eternity. If that's true of me, how can I think highly of myself? How could I expect other people to think highly of me if my own evaluation from Scripture is that I'm worthy of God's just judgment? But also, the gospel is humbling because it reminds me that God is astonishingly gracious to me, a wretched sinner. He's not only not given me what I deserve, but He has given me everything, every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. He's given me forgiveness of sins. He's given me adoption into His family. He's given me His Holy Spirit to strengthen and to guide me. The gospel is the antidote to the disease of pride in our hearts. The gospel will kill this sin in our hearts as we meditate upon it. The third sin that David mentions in verse 7, look there, is lies and deceit. The Lord is the God of all truth, and so His people must be people of truth. They must be people who speak the truth. And so let me ask, do you Do you struggle to be honest? Do you struggle to tell the truth? Do you find yourself sharing half-truths, feeling like those are good enough? Do you pass off lying as just exaggeration, telling the story with a bit bit more character and color? You know, these sins, lies and pride and slander, these, we often think of these as not that big a deal. But we see here, beginning in verse 5 and concluding in verse 8, that David says 
that he will destroy those who commit these sins. He'll put them to death because he knows that all sin is serious and it's a matter of life and death. Sin is that serious. This final picture in verse 8 is the king dispensing justice every morning against all the wicked in the land. He's wiping out all the evildoers from the Lord's city. And so you might be wondering, how do I apply this to my life today? Well, we definitely don't want you guys to be up in arms and slaying sinners around you. There'd be nobody left in this church if that were the case. We don't go around destroying sinful people. We're called to love our enemies. We're called to share the gospel with sinners. We're called to forgive one another. We don't have a city from which to cut evildoers off. So how do we judge wickedness? And should we even do that? Or do we wait for God to do that on the final day? That's a, that's a good question. But I think the answer is yes, we do judge wickedness. We don't do it like the nation of Israel and King David, because in the new covenant, God's city, His people, are His church. And we're called to judge one another, in fact. We're called to call one another to keep following the King, the blameless King, Jesus. And when people stray from this path, when they walk away from the Lord, we are called to remind them where all of those other paths lead to. They lead to destruction. They lead to death. And finally, if someone in the church refuses to listen to us as we call them back, refuses to walk with us on the way that's blameless, then the church must act, and the church makes a judgment. And like David, we, we can't endure sin, we can't tolerate it in our midst, and so together as local churches, we sorrowfully say, you aren't being faithful, you're not following the King, you can't remain part of Christ's church because you're not following Him. And we do this because that's what the King has commanded us to do in Matthew 18. The judgment of the king in David's time and the judgment of the church in church discipline today are a foreshadow. They're just a foreshadow of that final day of judgment when all will be laid bare, that we'll be judged according to all that we've done. Every careless word, every evil thought, every wicked deed will be reckoned, and even the sinful intentions of our hearts will be weighed. If we were to stand on that day, if we were to stand on our own, we would be all found guilty. None of us would be blameless. But for those who've turned from sin and trusted in Christ, in Him we're counted blameless. This is glorious news, brothers and sisters. He was judged so that we would go free. He was cut off so that we would be welcomed in to the city of, the God, of our God, the new Jerusalem the one that God has prepared for us. And finally, not only does the king punish wickedness, but he also rewards the righteous. We jumped over verse 6, so look back there with me. This is the king favoring the faithful. Verse 6 says, I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. Those who walk in the way that is blameless will enjoy intimacy with the king, a special relationship. They'll dwell with him. 
and they'll minister to Him. They'll serve Him. Every Christian has this privilege of intimacy with God. Through Christ, we've been reconciled to our Heavenly Father. King Jesus has given you an all-access pass to fellowship with Him anytime, anywhere. And in His eyes, you are counted faithful. He wants you to come to Him. And when you do, He'll never turn you away. We look forward to the day when that will be fully completed, when we will dwell with the Lord in that great city. But for now, we get to enjoy it especially when we gather together in His name and He promises to be among us by His Spirit. But in addition to that, every Christian has been called to minister to the King as well, to serve the Lord. It's not just pastors or elders. It's not just pastors and deacons. So whether you became a Christian two weeks ago or 20 years ago, you're called to serve the King with all of your heart. You're called to make disciples for Him, to help others to walk blamelessly, to follow after Jesus together, to follow our blameless King. And so we've seen that King David vowed to walk with integrity in private and to walk with integrity in public. And of course, he failed miserably, just as we all have. But where he failed, King Jesus has triumphed. Jesus lived a perfect life so that those who trust in him could be counted faithful and could live faithfully, to enjoy his favor, to enjoy intimacy with him, and to one day dwell with him in his Father's house that he's prepared for us. One day we will reach the celestial city where we will see our blameless king face to face and we will be his blameless people forevermore. Let's pray for the Lord's God's help to follow this king until he comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you are a God of steadfast love and justice. And yet, we, though guilty, can be recipients of your love. That in Christ Jesus, your blameless Son, our King and our Savior, we can be counted righteous. We can be welcomed in. And we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the other. Lord, we look forward to the day when we'll be completely free from sin, when Christ comes back. But until then, Lord, help us to be doing this work of putting to death sin in our lives, cutting it off, killing it. Lord, I pray for this church that you would help them to be growing in likeness to King Jesus and pray that they would take sin seriously, that they would rejoice in your love, that they would delight in it, that they would set their eyes upon you, that they would sing your praises in their hearts. And we pray that you would cause them to grow and bear much fruit fruit of holiness, for the glory of your name we pray. Amen.